I'd like you to take your Bibles at this time and turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14. Having acquainted ourselves with the enemy, we now want to move on to consider the whole armor of God. The armor of God is the spiritual capacity to live and fight and stand and represent Christ. If you enter into this spiritual conflict in your own strength, you're going to be a spiritual casualty. We cannot go forth into the battle with human philosophy and human wisdom or the traditions and the commandments of men. Rather, God has provided us the enablement with this armor to stand fast in the faith. Now here it is interesting that the Apostle Paul is drawing an illustration from the Roman soldiers that he was often in the presence of. He had seen them come and go with all the changing of the guards. Even here as he writes the Ephesian letter, he is incarcerated in Rome for the sake of the gospel. And he observed day after day with the changing of the guard that the soldiers would come in in a full suit of armor and they would take off their helmet and they would set it aside. They'd remove their sword from their sheath and lay it aside as well. And also the shield that they often carried on their arm. Those three pieces of armor they would take off and they would always keep it though within sight and within reach. But there were three other pieces of armor that they never took off. And that was their girdle and their breastplate and their shoes. Now the reason they didn't take them off was because if the alarm were to be sounded in battle, there simply wasn't enough time to put those pieces of armor on. They were heavy oftentimes and cumbersome and they had to be strapped and buckled and tied and that took time. And by the time one would do that, he'd be pierced through with many sorrows. And so here the Apostle Paul challenges us to put on the whole armor of God. But note here, we see the sovereignty of God and human responsibility again coming together. In verse 11, we note that the apostle states, put on the whole armor of God. God has provided us with this armor in his sovereignty. But as you drop down to verse 13, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. Now it is our responsibility 
to know everything there is to know everything about each of these pieces of armor that we might not only put it on, but go forth into the battle, that we might effectively use it to defend the faith. And so God has provided it in his sovereignty, but we bear the responsibility to take it unto ourselves. Know the significance of each piece of armor, put it on, leave it on, and use it to the glory of God. Also, there's something else here in verse 14 we need to note about the six pieces of armor. They can all be applied to Christ, and Christ is the basis of all. Notice that Paul says, Stand therefore, having your loins girded about with truth. Christ is the truth. You'll remember that he said to the disciples in the upper room, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Christ is the truth. And then we go on. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. Christ is the righteousness of God. Verse 15. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that Christ is our peace. Verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith. And was it not the faithfulness of Christ that caused him to step across the stars into this world of sin and woe. And he lived and he dwelt among us and he was lifted up once for all to carry out the will of God and provide eternal salvation for all who will believe. It was the faith of Christ that brought him there and maintains our salvation. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. <clears throat> salvation is of the Lord. It was Christ who shed his precious blood that we might have a knowledge of sins forgiven. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And Christ himself is the living word. So all of these spiritual enablements are based upon Christ himself. He's the basis for it all. But now we want to go back and we want to single each piece of armor out and understand its importance. Notice the apostle says back in verse 14, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about, with truth. Now, in biblical times, they wore long flowing garments. And so if one was going to go into battle as a soldier, he had to wear a girdle about his waist. And what they would do is they would gather up that garment and they would put it around their waist and place the girdle over top of it and secure it and buckle it very tightly. It is also that which would hold the sword. 
So it was a very important piece of armor. But it took time to put on. That's why they put it on and left it on and never took it off. And we must do the same. But here, notice as Paul now draws a spiritual illustration out, he says we are to girt ourselves with the truth. So what that means is we need to be prepared long before we enter into the battle and into the conflict. We, but you must discipline yourself. You must take time. You must open the Word of God and study it and bring literature alongside that will assist you in your study. You need to be here in these services, listening to a godly senior pastor who's proclaiming the riches of God's grace. He'll prepare you for the battle out yonder. We must girt on the truth of the doctrines of God and be prepared beforehand. Let's take for an example, creation and evolution. There are many who believe in evolution, that life began from the very simplistic life forms and has developed over billions of years to the complex life forms that we see today. That's the lie of the devil. That's taught nowhere in the Word of God. But can you defend creation? You say, well, I just have to turn back to the early chapters of Genesis. But what do you do when someone confronts you and say, well, but that's just a myth. That's not true. That didn't actually happen. But oh, it did. And that is a literal account. And what about the theistic evolutionists, even in Christendom, that God created all things, but then it evolved over billions of years, from which came the long day theory that each day of creation is at least a billion years. Could you defend the faith? For the Bible clearly teaches God created all things in heaven and earth in six literal 24-hour days. And that can be proven from the scriptures. Let's go back to the Word of God and we'll show you what we mean. Genesis chapter 1. And verse 3. Here we girt on the truth of creation, a literal creation. And in verse 3 of Genesis 1 we read, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. So on the first day, God created light. From the light of the candle to the laser beam. God, in his infinite wisdom, spoke, and there was light. 
and he divided the light from the darkness. And notice, this, as it states here, was the evening and the morning of the first day. Now that's a literal, creative, 24-hour day. And some will challenge you on that. To say, no, that's a great period of time. Millions of years at least, perhaps billions. Could you defend the faith? You can do it right from this passage here. First of all, I call your attention to the term day. Now this is a very simple study. The term day in the Hebrew is yom. Y-O-M. Very simple. It can refer to a 24-hour day, or it can indeed refer to a long period of time, like the day of the Lord. That covers the tribulation, the thousand-year reign of Christ, the white throne judgment to come. Well, which is it? 24 hours or a long period of time here? Well, hold your place here. We'll be right back and turn to Exodus chapter 20.
He created everything with the appearance of age. And we don't know how much appearance of age is incorporated into his creation. Take Adam for a moment. When God molded him from the dust of the earth and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. How old was Adam on the day he was created? He had the appearance of being at least 30 or 40 years of age, but he was only moments old. In fact, in the Hebrew, they were not even classified as an adult until 30 years of age. And the trees that God brought forth, they were mature and bringing forth fruit abundantly. That takes years to happen on the normal process. But on the day they were created, they were mature and bearing fruit. You see, it's the very nature of God's creative work that he instilled the appearance of age. And all of those rock structures, we just simply don't know how much appearance that is. Actually, the earth is very young, not more than six or 7,000 years old, according to the chronology of scriptures. Now that brings us back to Ephesians. So what the Apostle Paul says here, to girt on the truth, this is what he means. He means that we need to acquaint ourselves with all of the doctrines of the Word of God. We need to have a well-rounded knowledge of all of the Word of God greatly divided. Therefore, you can go forth with all assuredly to defend the faith. Not only do you need to do that with creation, but in other areas as well. The person of Christ. Now I ask you before God this day, as you're sitting there in your seat, if someone were to challenge the deity of Christ and to say he was a good man and a great teacher, but he wasn't God, can you think of two scriptures right now, this moment, that you can defend that? that Christ is the Son of God? That you can refute that false teaching that he was merely a man and a great teacher and a wonderful prophet? The Bible teaches he's the Son of God. He's God Almighty. You should be able to. Paul says, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead body. There are others in the faith that are now questioning the bodily resurrection of Christ. They say he rose only in spirit from the dead. Where would you go to defend the faith? To expose that as false doctrine, unsound doctrine? Did not our Lord meet with his disciples? And they were frightened. They thought they had seen a spirit. And what did the Lord say? A spirit has not flesh and bone as you see me have. Handle me and see, and they handle the word of life. He arose bodily from the dead. And he's alive forevermore, and his resurrection is the guarantee of ours. 
You see, brethren, that's girding on the truth. Preparing yourself beforehand. Then the apostle goes on to say, having on the breastplate of righteousness. Notice he doesn't say about putting it on. You already have it on. You put it on, leave it on, is the sense. Now this was the piece of armor that protected the vital organs of the soldier. So it too is very, very important. Now notice he says that the breastplate is that of righteousness. And there are different types of righteousness spoken of in the scriptures. We have the self-righteousness of man. Certainly that is not being referred to here. Then there is the imputed righteousness of Christ to the believer the moment we're saved. Our sins are put to his account, and his righteousness in return is placed on our account. And so we have the righteousness of Christ. That's called imputed righteousness. If you're saved this morning, you have that. The moment you trusted Christ, it was given to you. You have it at this hour. The day you die, you'll have it. Throughout eternity, you'll have it. But never is that said in the scriptures to be put on. And it is implied that you could take it off. I believe we have that as a gift from God. But here I think we have a practical righteousness that emanates from the righteousness of Christ that we have been given. Here the apostle is speaking about our conduct. Our conduct in Christ should always be above reproach. Never give the enemy an opportunity to be able to point his finger in accusation or to criticize you justly. Pastor Sam used to say that to me all the time with many of the brethren who come up with all of these extreme doctrines and all of this unsound teaching. He said, Brother Paul, he said, if someone is going to level a charge against you or the ministry of the Berean Bible Society, make sure it's always on the basis that you're standing for the truth. Because, you see, we can defend the truth by the Word of God, but we cannot defend the unsound teachings of men. This is a practical righteousness. Now let me show you this passage in practice. Let's go over to the book of Philemon a moment. I'll give me an example of it. Philemon. Yes, that's in your Bible, back before Hebrew. Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. Again, the Apostle Paul is a prisoner in Rome. 
But prior to being taken to Rome, the Apostle Paul went on his apostolic journeys preaching Christ in Him crucified. And he had phenomenal results. And on one of his apostolic journeys, he stopped at Ephesus for a two-year period. And it says in the book of Acts, all Asia heard the word of God. So those from Laodicea and Hierapolis and Colossae flocked to Ephesus to hear the great apostle proclaim the gospel of the grace of God. One of those who made that journey was a man by the name of Philemon. He was a wealthy man. And he heard Paul preach Christ, and he believed the gospel, and he was saved. Now Philemon was a slave owner, and back in biblical times, that was very common and accepted. That didn't make it right, and I don't believe it was the will of God for one man to be put in bondage of another. Slavery is a result of sin, pure and simple. And thankfully, the gospel has freed many souls through the years. But back here, we see that Philemon had a slave by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus became disgruntled with his master for one reason or another. Now, I think Philemon was a fair man and a fair master. And he was proclaiming the word of God. And I think he was proclaiming it to the slaves as well. And Onesimus tried to run, not just from Philemon, but from God. And he steals away. And he flees from Colossae. And where does a runaway slave go? To the biggest city you can find to try to blend in. Isn't that what you do? But you know, he stood out in a crowd. Like an Amish person walking down the streets of Cleveland. They stand out. And that's the way Onesimus did. When he went to Rome, he stood out. Like he's a blinking sign. I'm a former slave. Just by his attire. And he had no income. No one to go to, and so he started to steal. I think that's implied. Just to survive. It was a matter of survival at this point, and he got caught. And even though he tried to flee the gospel and run into the world and his master, he was pushed right into the arms of the Apostle Paul. And here's Paul and Onesimus. Here in Rome, together, the runaway slave. And Paul brings him to Christ. He wins him to the Lord. And notice now, Paul writes Philemon, his friend, the slave owner. And in verse 9, yet for love's sake, I rather beseech thee, for I beg thee, my friend, being such and one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, 
whom I have begotten in my bonds. Right there it shows Paul had contact with Onesimus in Rome. And he preached Christ to him, and Onesimus responded and believed. You can't run from God. And in verse 11, which in time past was to be unprofitable. And I find that interesting, because the name of Onesimus means profitable. But here now he had stolen from his master, he had fled from his presence, and he had become unprofitable. And I like how Luther puts it. He says, we're all Onesimuses. We're all in bondage to sin. And we need a savior. I like that. That's good. But now, profitable to thee and to me. You see, he's redeemed back to God. He's been redeemed out of the slave market of sin, just as we have, and we're set free forevermore. But now there's a matter of right and wrong here. Paul had led Onesimus to Christ. And he had every right to him. He's a new man. He's a new creature in Christ at this point. And he could have been very profitable to the Apostle Paul. Except for one matter. Onesimus didn't belong to Paul. He belonged to Philemon, his friend. And notice in verse 13, whom I would have retained with me, that in my stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. Paul says he doesn't rightfully belong to me, but he does belong to you, and I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to return him to you. That's practical righteousness. Abstaining from even the appearance of evil. And Paul says, I didn't want to keep him that you would feel it was out of your necessity that you had to give him to me. If you're going to give him back to me, do it willingly. But before you do that, I'm sending him back to you. You make the decision. And then in verse 18, if he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, or oweth thee anything, put it on my account. I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it. If he has harmed you financially in any way, if he's taken something he shouldn't have, put it to my account. I will pay for it. That's a beautiful picture of redemption, isn't it? We've wronged God. We've sinned against God. We are slaves to that sin. Oh, Christ stepped into the slave market of sin and shed his precious blood to redeem us back unto God. He paid the price. And so, brethren, when you put on the breastplate of righteousness, what you're doing is always walking worthy of your calling. Always do 
that which is right. Never think to yourself, no one will ever find out. Or what difference does it make? It does make a difference. First, for conscience sake, and second, God Almighty knows. But for the sake of your testimony, you must live a consistent, godly life in Christ Jesus. That brings us back to Ephesians. The apostle goes on to the third piece of armor. He says, And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Next, he draws our attention to the footwear of the Roman soldier. This is another piece of armor that the apostle noticed was never taken off. The shoes were usually leather, very sturdy, Oftentimes had spikes in that the soldier could dig in and brace himself for a blow. That he could maintain his balance and his position. Now in biblical times, they knew how important this piece of armor was because Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, they caused their armies to march hours on end and days on end to surprise their enemy. The enemy thinking, there's no way they could be here in a month. In two weeks they were there. And there was that element of surprise. So our footing is so careful. But notice as Paul now brings that into a spiritual application that our feet are to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This isn't merely evangelism here. Usually when we see that term gospel, we think of bringing someone to Christ, and indeed it does mean that, the gospel of salvation. But here we're talking about believers who already know the Lord, believers who are struggling in this conflict every day, Believers who are attempting to maintain their balance in the faith. Now we have the peace with God and the peace of God taught in the scriptures. The peace with God is when the sinner trusts Christ as their personal Savior and is redeemed to the Lord. We're at rest with God. We're right with Him. That's found in Romans chapter 5. Here, I believe, the apostle is speaking about the peace of God which passes all understanding. It's having a knowledge of the sovereignty of God, that he is working in and through us to carry out the good pleasure of his will. This is the piece of armor that will get you through those trying times in life. As you put on the girdle of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, and you add this piece of armor 
of the peace of God, it will stabilize you in the faith. You'll be able to face any crisis that comes your way. Because you know, from this piece of armor, God is sovereign. And he's in control of all things. Even things that are beyond your control. There may come a day when you'll have to call on this piece of armor. And it may be soon. God may call one of your children home long before the time you would expect them to be called on to be with the Lord. Will you be able to handle that? Notice what Paul says in Philippians. Just a couple pages over. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. This is the passage you need to memorize. You need to appropriate by faith you need to understand. Be careful for nothing. And Paul is saying, don't worry about anything. Easy for him to say, huh? But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And it will if it's applied. It will if you understand the sovereign working of God in the church, the body of Christ, and in your life as well. That he is working all things out according to the counsel of his will. That in eternity, not only will it be for our good, but ultimately for his glory. And sometimes that means Losing a loved one premature. And we can't understand that. We can't comprehend that while they were cut off at such a young, tender age. But you see, if you've been teaching your little ones from little on to trust Christ, and that they too have the hope of heaven, if anything should ever happen, you'll know they're with the Lord. And it will sustain you to know that you'll see them again when the rapture takes place. Now, brother and I have had many, many funerals, and I'm limiting this now to Christian funerals, where I've had families who have totally gone to pieces, and they were unconsoled. And these were families in the faith that should have known better. And they're asking me the question, Pastor, where are they? Where's my little one at? They didn't even know. What happens at death? Is a little soul sleeping in the ground or is it with Jesus? And I have to go back to the elementary things, things they should have known years ago. Now don't misunderstand me. <coughs> We all grieve at some at those times. We all sorrow and the tears stream down our face. That's only acceptable behavior in times like that. I'm talking about being distraught and dismayed and unconsolable. And yet I've had other Christian families who have gone through similar 
tragedies, and they're looking to the Lord. They're hurting too. They're hurting just as much. But what a wonderful testimony as loved ones and friends step up to the casket. My little one knew the Lord. Do you know the Lord? I heard him say it. We'll see them again. You'll call on the peace of God here many, many times in your Christian experience. I saw this verse in action at the end of January. And we'll close with this. Received a phone call from David Watson. Many of you know David. His father, Otis Watson, was a senior grace pastor for many, many years who faithfully proclaimed the word in Evansville. He's now with the Lord. But the family had called me because their son was a state trooper and he was shot and critically injured. And so I went to Louisville where they liked flighting him over to the hospital. And I began to put all the pieces together of what happened. Brent, as I said, was a Kentucky State Trooper, and he received a call from dispatch that there was a man threatening his family with bodily harm. And so Brent made his way to the house and entered in. The man was in a fit of rage, very agitated, almost uncontrollable at the beginning. And Brent managed to calm the man down. And it seemed like the situation was under control. And unexpectedly, the man who was crazed went into a fit of rage and attacked him and began to wrestle with Brent and be with the man. And the man's brother-in-law was there and he dove in to try to help Brent because he was one of the ones being threatened by this guy. But in so doing, he pinned Brent's arm against his side momentarily, and the man who was crazed got a hold of his gun and was standing there like this and started firing at point-blank range, if you can imagine that, with a 10 millimeter. And Brent was hit in the left shoulder, shattered his shoulder up in here, and he went to turn just as the man shot the second time and it hit his arm, ricocheted down, and blew out at this elbow right here. And the man's brother-in-law put the gun, put his arm up, throwing the gun up temporarily, giving Brant a chance to turn and get out of the way. He was grazed right along here, and as he turned, the bullet grazed him here, too, on his way out the door. At that point, I've been ready to pass out just right on the spot. Now, these police issues, these 10 millimeter shells, they're hollow point. What that means is when the bullet hits, it goes like this. So it just rips as it goes through the body. Somehow, Brent managed to get out to the police cruiser and get his shotgun and hold this man at bay. Now, this arm was dangling like this, he said. And this shoulder, he could hardly move to get the gun up, but he was able to get him up just enough to shoot to hold him at bay until backup arrived. And when backup arrived,
was telling me in intensive care. He said, Pastor, I was sitting there. He said, blood was everywhere. And he said, you know, I thought about this passage here, the peace of God passes all understanding. I remember my grandpa talking about that. And he said to the Lord, whatever you have, Lord, I hope you'll let me live. But if not, I look forward to being with you. Somehow he never blacked out for all that. They lifelined him over to Louisville, whereby the providence of God, the surgical team was there who did that first-hand transplant. Remember that? We heard that on the news. They were still in town. <coughs> and the surgeon said it was like putting the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle back together to reconstruct that elbow. You see, Brent was saved. And he had put on the armor of God years ago. And it helped him through that crisis. And the family as well. I've never seen such a wonderful testimony through such a trauma and such a tragedy. And already God is using it. Brent has been asked to speak in all of the Kentucky public schools. He's been down to Florida and has spoken to the police academy and the police academy in Indiana. And thankfully, he's expected to make a full recovery. Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God. It's the spiritual capacity to live, fight, stand, and represent Christ. Let's close it. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank thee for these scriptures. We pray for the Watson family as they come to mind this day, that you might be with them. We know at this time they're without a pastor, without a shepherd for the flock there. But we're thankful, Lord, that they look to thee in their time of need. We're thankful, Lord, they had a knowledge of the whole armor of God and had already applied these things years ago. And Lord, we pray for this assembly and the testimony of grace here in Ashtabula. We thank you for each soul in this room that they've taken time out of busy schedules to come and worship thee. And we pray they might make an application of these things by faith. And we'll be careful to give thee all the honor and the glory and the praise and adoration. Or it's in Christ's name we pray.